Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. It's Sunday evening, April 11th, 2021. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Tanya Hathaway with Tanya Talks, where your voice is heard and your stories told on Marty Oakley's TS Radio Network. This evening, Burke's 89.9 KLRB FM Lighthouse Christian Radio. Before we get started, before I move into my uh, dialogue, um, I would like Marty to uh, just give a few words before we begin the Lawton 4 conversation. Uh, And I want Marty to please share with our listener, whether you're listening in through the radio, through the live stream, or from calling her number, uh, please pay attention to the other shows that TS Radio Network puts on. Marty, can you give a few words, please? with um, what your other shows are about, because they all have to do with public corruption. Yeah, well, um, for one thing, your your audio is really bad. It sounds like you're um, in a cam. I don't know what's going, uh, okay. going on there. Okay, I'll that. Thank you for that. Okay, yeah. Um, hospice, we, we do the Betrayed by Hospice show. Uh, my focus, of course, is uh, these abusive guardianships where these predatory guardians are targeting and abducting elderly people they're hunting us they are actually hunting us uh with the eye on seizing the estate and leaving you to rot in some hellhole they put you in um we cover so many topics i work with john lacron on uh lacron on uh, monday nights we cover everything from the constitution to current laws yeah you broke uh, the all girls pack <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah. Well, not <laughs> we really. got our approval. Because, that was okay. That was all right. <laughs> but, no, uh, because on Thursday nights, once a month, at the end of the month, the last Thursday of every month, I have the USDA hour on whistleblowers with Lawrence Lucas, the black farmers, um, what's been done mm-hmm. to these families, uh, almost a million and a half acres taken from them illegally by the USDA and sold to their good friends like Bill Gates. Um, yeah. So yes, uh, it's 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 been a mess. But anyway, so Lawrence he comes on with me once a month, and uh, that's about all they can do. They are so busy uh, with so much going on. And I think this is Melissa. You've got Melissa on, and you have got um, Jennifer on, and you're good to go, girl. And you have and you know, a word or two about the whistleblower summit. And, oh, uh, yeah. you know, that this is also brought uh, to to you, our listeners, by, um, by the, through the, go ahead. Yeah, 
uh, it went in coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit. And um, this is every July. It's an event. And Tanya and I have both been out to D.C. for this event. And this thing is huge. And it is a wonderful place to go to network and listen to other whistleblowers, listen to what they're doing, any progress they've made, um, what's happened with them. Uh, you would not, you, you absolutely would not believe the level of corruption in federal agencies that goes on every single day. And as taxpayers, we are paying for all of that. Not only that, even if they nail one of these fools for corruption, theft, fraud, waste, abuse, uh, sexual discrimination, um, sexual unwanted sexual advances, in many cases rape, they are allowed to resign their position so they can keep all their federal benefits. And if they are, in fact, ever charged, we, the taxpayer, pay for their attorneys. We pay for everything. These people literally get away with murder, and we pay for all of it. Um, we're still paying them their benefits because they were allowed to resign instead of being terminated for cause. And like I say, if it goes on to court or even while they're in the position, if it goes on to court, we pay for every, we pay for their attorneys. We pay any fines, fees, and restitutions. We pay any court costs. It does seem a little bit unconstitutional, doesn't it? Because I don't see anybody uh, else. Uh, Ted. It does not, yeah. in, right? All right, getting their, yeah. their uh, uh, bill footed uh, by the taxpayers, yeah. and nor should they. Uh, so, exactly. Uh, so and you know, Tom, if you look at all these all these guys that, you know, in the, in the government at any level, they get nailed for um, child pornography, pedophilia, um, sexual assault, you know, all these things. Do you ever hear one of them going to jail? No. And yet you're dealing they with fade away. on this show. Oh, whatever happens yeah. to you. Mm-hmm. They fade away. Yeah. They, but if the people on this show, if they stole a loaf of bread, they'd do 10 years in prison for it. But these people right. are untouchable. Like I say, they pay on no level. The most that might happen to them is that they're forced to resign from their office. And But they're still part of the club. And everybody closes in. The protection racket circles the wagons. And that's the end of it. And we pay the bill on all of it. But anyway, that's all I got to say. Go ahead on with your show, girl. PPJG.me. Take a look at that web page. Uh, that's Marty's page. PPJG.me. And you will learn so much more. Um, please uh, pay attention to that. Also, on Saturday, uh, Saturdays, if you're in Oklahoma and the surrounding area, listen in to Stephen Burke's 89.9 KLRB. FM because he has tuned he has turned Saturdays into quite a discussion. My gosh, I just wish we could get that blasted out there even more. But it's about it's it's very it's a very well I guess you could say political or you could say constitutional discussion because that's what it's all about. It's protecting the constitutional rights of the people of us. And, you know, we're all made equally, right? We're all made equally. and But we're all not treated equally. And there we have some issues. Now, um, we're going to be railing on Oklahoma quite a bit tonight. Um, but that means, does not mean that every representative 
is abusing their position. I think uh, what has happened in some instances is that some representatives are just doing what they can to hold on to their positions, and they've been threatened if they don't uh, follow in in line. I know that's happened uh, personally. I'm aware of that, that happening with many attorneys in Oklahoma that were uh, actually disbarred for uh, doing the right things, like literally disbarred, um, where booms show up to their house because they were going to represent somebody and um, and their lives, their family, their kids, their, their lives are threatened. They show up in court the next day and they tell that party, I'm sorry, I can't represent you. They're busy saving their family's lives. Um, it should never be that way. We also know about suspicious deaths of attorneys. So it's gotten to the point where, um, gee whiz, uh, if you want to practice law, practice. If you want to be a judge, if you want to be a prosecutor, if you want to do law, if you're in that particular part of Oklahoma or those parts, because it seems to be the exception to the rule that it's not, that go along with a good old boy and girl system, um, then then you, that's what you've got to do if you want to uh, have a life. And I don't think everybody gets into uh, these positions to um, to create these monsters out of themselves because that's what you're doing because you are not living up to your oath of office. You're not living up to what you stand for in the federal, the United States of America Constitution. We already know because the Bar Association is a part of the Supreme Court, an arm of the Supreme Court. We have a huge issue with that, don't we? I do. I'm not going to make the show about that tonight. This is about the Lawton Four. It's about the Lawton Four, which is a prime example of corruption in Comanche County and as well. The truth is the Comanche County is they're racist. The people that put these guys in prison are racist. And you're going to learn why. There are the Richard Glossops, the Daniel Holtz, uh, there are other people of other than, than African American that are fighting for their lives too. But in Comanche County, let me tell you something. These convictions far outweigh the population, the black population in Oklahoma. I think probably throughout the country. But Oklahoma is the world leader in incarcerations. The world leader, yes, the world leader for women in incarcerated. Okay? They're the world leader for incarcerations per square capita mile. Now, Per square mile, forgive me. I want to say to my mom, hi, mom, in New Hampshire, before I forget, because I know mom's tuning in, spoke to her a little earlier today. Thanks for your support, mom. Love you. Long show, two hours, mom. Don't feel obligated. (laughs) Uh, But we have been discussing the Lawton Four for just about a year now, where individually we have had uh, shows, uh, at least a couple, on each 
each victim of wrongful convictions, uh, whether they came on for part of the time or a loved one came on or an advocate came on. And then uh, the pearl here is Melissa Hurry. Melissa Hurry was introduced to me by Arthur Bean, uh, who works for a law firm um, and as a private investigator. And um, and M- Melissa is the pearl here because this is her passion too, because this is what she studies and what she does in Connecticut, but she has taken quite an interest in uh, these cases because there's so many coming out of Oklahoma. My goodness. You know, there's so many coming out of Oklahoma. We have had Michelle Malkin with, with Daniel in the Den. We've had Susan Sharannon out there trying to gossip's life. We've had uh, Kim Kardashian uh, trying to save Julius Jones' life. You know, not just them, but these are people that can come forward and their voices, their voices will capture more interest. So this is really important why we need to share this information, why we need to keep tuned in, and why we need to pay attention to the details. After the show tonight, I am going to put on my uh, Facebook page, Injustice in Oklahoma Exposed, which was hacked, of course, so it's not as big as it was, but it's, uh, that's okay. Got to start again. Um, I'm going to put those individual shows uh, that we had for anybody who's interested in more of the intricate details of these cases, okay? I'm going to put those shows up that were on that um, we did on uh, Marty Opie and Stephen Burke's platform too, okay? So those are the archives. Uh, tonight we're bringing them all together. So this, this show <laughs> has primarily been exposing injustice in Oklahoma for over three years now as far as the show goes. It started due to family court, probate court, the theft of millions that have equated to billions at the hands of malfeasance for those that are, that are heisting not only money, but children, loss of lives to the destruction of what is meant to be a constitutional, a just and constitutional due process. But in Oklahoma, it's become the rule as opposed to the exception to the rule given the rampant spread, the planted successors forgive me, the planted successors, okay, the back turning from the Bar Association who unconstitutionally once again is in the Oklahoma Constitution as an actual arm of the Supreme Court. This is worse than the fox guarding the hen house. The justices, when it behooves their best interests, opine on matters that brings forward a perjured message to substantiate decisions that are made in appeals courts. We have Bob Macy's and the Joyce Gilchrist, now deceased, Dear God, don't rest their souls that after their facts are publicly known to have been tampered after they died, uh, they tampered, they planted further evidence. They planted, it's not evidence, they planted things to make other people guilty in the eyes of a jury, okay? Or into fear and, and through a plea deal, okay? Um, Oh, let's go along with the agenda. Come on now. What is the agenda? What does it boil down to, people? Money, 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 power, money, 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 power, money, power, money. You want to find out why this has to do with money? That's another show. It's easy. It's real easy, but that's another show, okay? We have the hanging Judge Henderson that scrutinized for many years, but nobody ever does anything about it. Scrutinized by victims, by people who are aware 
of the unjust decisions that are being made or not being made. But now, all of a sudden, he's being scrutinized, thank God, for a sexual misconduct. Okay, where's that going to go? I wonder where that's going to go. The hanging judge. That's what he's known for. It'll probably fade. We have another notorious, notorious uh, one of countless that continue to go without true investigations, similar to the Oklahoma Bar Association's agenda. Okay, we've got Judge McCall. Judge McCall is on the pardon parole board, and he's believed to be receiving a pension, which is against the policies of Oklahoma, while he sits on the pardon and parole board that is to review both violent and nonviolent offenders. But guess what? There's a huge conflict of interest. Number one, he's not supposed to be receiving a pension, okay, while he is employed by Oklahoma and the Pardon Parole Board, to the best of my belief. But as well, he has been known to publicly state that he will not give a yay for a violent offender to go forward with the commutation, the parole process. What's he doing there? he doing there he's one of he, he was the judge on jorge bravo's case he was one of the lot and four what is he doing there it could be you it could be you that was convicted wrongfully or actually through due process and it's time for a review but mccall will never pass you he will never pass you we have a man by the name of by the name of uh oh my goodness daniels uh oh. I'll come up with that name later. I've got so many things, so many notes in front of me that I want to bring up tonight. But we have a man who has been in prison for 30-plus years, and he comes up to the Pardon Parole Board in May. He, his story's been on the show numerous times, numerous times. I'll get to that name a little later on. Systematically put away. Doesn't even make it to the first, you know, the first stage. And he, too is a victim of wrongful conviction, over-conviction. He, too, he is the epitome of a man who deserves a second chance. Oh, he's been mentoring others, taking all the classes to better himself so the best, you know, the best that he can be. And, and, and he deserves to re-enter into society. We have prosecutors like David Prater, David Prater threatening to sue because somebody's speaking the truth? Please. Okay, so here we are. Here we stand. We stand with Melissa Hurry, who is a uh, conviction integrity unit advocate. She's an ethical, uh, she's involved in the legal ethical aspect of the law. She is getting her master's degree. She is an expert who knows many, many details of these cases. And we also have with us Jennifer Watson. Jennifer Watson is the wife of Stanley Watson, one of the Lawton Four. And we have uh, Bridget. I'm not going to say your last name because I'm not sure how you feel about giving your last name uh, since we last spoke, but uh, who knows every detail about these cases intricately. And so we're all going to get started with uh, one by one with, uh, with this information and show you where, all, where there are patterns of injustice by the same district, 
by uh, many of the same people. We've got Ken Sue Dorfell, an attorney out of uh, out of Lawton. Now, <laughs> the very first show that I did on Marty Oakley's uh, platform involved Ken Sue Dorfell, and it's not about that show tonight. In that case, but I will say, boy, for somebody who likes to get paid cash in the hallways of the courts where nobody can see and won't and refuses in certain circumstances, certainly the ones I know about, to sign a receipt and to actually have a contract with those that you're supposedly defending, man, Ken Sue, you really get around, don't you? And she's still there. She's still there ruining lives. Uh, <clears throat> let's get, let's start out. I want to introduce you, Melissa. Once again, can you give a little bit something about yourself? Hi, Tanya. Um, yeah, for those that don't know me, uh, my name is Melissa Hurry, and uh, my my daytime profession is I work for the Office of State Ethics and here in the state of Connecticut, in Hartford, Connecticut. I've been there for going on six years now. Before that, I worked for 17 years for a private law firm where we did uh, predominantly criminal law and family law. So I have been in the legal field, I guess, collectively for about 23 years now. And I am in the last semester of my master's degree in criminal justice. And I take a a great interest in wrongful convictions, excessive sentencing, and why they happen, how they happen, where they happen, and how we can fix that. Okay, and, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, so we're going to start by talking about Michael Gaines' case first, but Jennifer, because you're on, I would just to, uh, I'd like to introduce you, ask you to stay with us. Um, and I also want everybody to know that this, if you're listening via live stream, this will also be the archive tomorrow, okay? So if you miss something, if the reception's not so hot, um, if you've got kids and you need to tuck them in, whatever the case may be, um, this will still be here, okay? So, Jennifer, how are you tonight? I'm doing good. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, as I, I told you earlier, I, I you know, re-listened to these uh, shows and, you know, be prepared and, and, you know, know enough of the details that we need to. And uh, I also listened to Myron, who came on the second show about your husband. Yes, and uh, and I, I was so glad that I did that because uh, it's just incredibly telling. Uh, but I hope you have a lot of listeners out there and uh, that are paying attention. I can say uh, that we do have, I believe, a representative that is listening in tonight who said that he would do his best to listen in. Um, and he is a representative um, on uh, criminal justice reform. I won't give his name because I really don't know if he wants me to give his name. But certainly if he does, he can let me know. And um <laughs> And I'm not going to put him in the spotlight right now, but what we know that he is listening in um, or will be listening to the archive at least. So uh, we want to thank those that do care about the reform and, um, and, and also 
help us to help you and let us help you understand um, what people don't want you to know as a representative because we can put you in the know. Is that right, ladies? We can put you in the know um, through not just he said, she said, but through evidence of being denied the due processes, evidence of the fact that there is no evidence that led to conviction, and much, much more. Um, Once again, Comanche County has been known for bias, for racism, and we do know there there are other wrongful convictions that happen there to other people of color, but I really want to point this out. I really do want to point this out, as Melissa has before as well. Um, The population, um, actually, Melissa, you have that right at at your fingertips. I know you do. You have everything memorized. But I believe that it's more than 50% of – you go right ahead because you'll say it much better than me. (laughs) Which which, uh, statistic are we looking for? The statistic of of, – of African-American men in prison. Ah, okay. Yeah. So in Oklahoma. Versus the um, population. Okay, yeah. So uh, currently I believe that, um, so let's break this down. For every 100,000 people, so incarceration, incarceration rates per 100,000, excuse me, um, six, Oklahoma, 639 per 100,000 without including the demographic of race. If you look at the demographic of race, for every 100,000 incarcerated, 2,625 African-American compared to 580 white. And how how much of Oklahoma's population do African-Americans make up? 7.1%. That's very startling. Now, somebody had posted. (laughs) Go ahead. I was just going to say, so if if you look at that, um, African Americans are incarcerated at uh, over four times the the rate, the actual incarceration rate in Oklahoma. If that makes sense, it doesn't make sense, and that's the problem. It doesn't well, make sense, or it, it just no, it shouldn't to, be that way. Obviously, yeah, yeah. And, that is, those are what right. we're looking at the statistics. Looking at the statistics, and even though people can make at, up statistics, those don't lie. Yeah, I mean that that you know, and that's that's what's a hard thing for me to understand. Everybody has an opinion, but when you deal with facts, th- that shouldn't be an opinion. Facts are facts, and and if you're doing solid statistics or empirical research, things that are proven to be true, there are still people, many of them, who will ignore the facts and the statistics. Even now, on wrongful conviction, will say Melissa. The devil's advocate mm-hmm. will say, "Well, they need to stop committing the crimes." Okay, so that's true. I think that uh, a lot of people are aware there is a lot of black-on-black violence and crimes. Yes. Why? Okay, th- there is. I, I see. I, I see that um, posted by you know people talk about that a lot. But mm-hmm. what's that got to do? Do they talk about why? Do they talk about but why? What, exactly. But what's that got to do with four men that were wrongfully convicted? No, you because know, it's you just, can't it's just a throw out a statistic and, and somehow make it okay because it's not okay. It's not no, okay. it's not okay. Look, I, I, you know, I'm a white woman. I was definitely um, abused. 
in court, okay? Um, you know, it, it does happen. It happens there. I believe that Oklahoma, because it was the last state, I believe, that went into statehood, it was a place where others would go to for refuge, where you would not be extricated, extradited <laughs> uh, out of. And there's these wild, wild west stories that can explain this. And in the history of Oklahoma, uh, and it probably is why, you, you know, this still sticks around. We're talking about generations upon generations of this kind of malfeasance and where KKK in some parts of Oklahoma still exists. And um, and people are pushed out of town, uh, you know, and they're lucky if they're only pushed out of town. So let's just get real here because the fact is each one of these men has clear and convincing evidence that they do not belong there. And this is why your general anybody's generalizations out there will never be okay. We need to independently look at each case, and then we're going to be able to tie this in. So, uh, Bridget, how are you tonight? And thank you for coming on again. I know how much work you do and with little ones at home, but yet you are, you are, but you, you know, you just know all the facts along with Melissa, and uh, and so we're just so grateful to have you on. And we'd like to get started. If you want to just, you know, introduce yourself a little bit, and then we'd like to get started with uh, the Michael Gaines case. Bridget? Are you talking about Jennifer? No, I was actually looking for a Bridget. No, Bridget. Oh, Bridget? <laughs> Never mind. Okay, um, the last four digits are 8622. Hello? Hi, we got you. Hi. Well, thank you for having me. And my name is Bridget. And I am um, a very large advocate, particularly for Michael Gaines, of course, but also um, for the other three and the lot in four. It is very important to me to that they all get justice in their cases. Um, can I ask you? Sure. What is it that you see happening overall with these cases? Why they remain still? Um, I do feel there's a lot of misconduct within the system in Lawton. And there's a lot of people that are friends. There's a lot of people who feel they owe each other favors, and it's just very unfortunate how they handle all that stuff. I know for sure in Michael's case, he did not have a paid lawyer, um, and then he had his co-defendants who actually put this whole thing together, um, executed the plan, they solicited the crime for weeks. There's many people from Lawton who will tell you that they had even these same gentlemen approach them with the crime. It just so happened that they had to switch up 
their routine because they were getting nowhere. So they had to go into a do you want to ride around and hang out sort of thing, um, which turned into um, them drugging Michael and another one of their co-defendants. Just so that so he's, he's 37 the- years old now. He's been there. He's been in prison for 19 years, correct? Almost 19 years. Okay. It, and where is he in Lawton? Uh, no, he's in um, in Harmony, Oklahoma. Okay. All right. And this he, happened when he was how old? He was 18 years old when this happened. Okay. And Michael had no knowledge of the law, so his lawyer completely went against him. I mean, he threatened him with the death penalty. They brought um, a guy who his was lawyer. on death row. His own lawyer. His lawyer. Yeah. Right. Brought a guy off of death row, or he was an ex-death row inmate. Um, he had him come in because this death row inmate, he worked with a lot of um, lawyers. I mean, like at private firms as well as through the OIS office. And he brought him in and told him to basically intimidate Michael into taking whatever he tells him to take because of the fact and that didn't he didn't he, want to Didn't go- he deny the uh, the plea deal didn't he uh refuse the plea deal yeah he, he wanted he to know i'm not going to plea for something i didn't do and he wanted to go to trial and his lawyer carl bullen told him that um he didn't have a chance if he did and that's when he brought the ex inmate from death row on to you know poke the bear and try to intimidate him but then at that point when that didn't work he went to Michael's mom, who also wasn't knowledgeable of the law, and basically told her that she needs to say her final goodbyes because they're going to kill her son if he doesn't plead to whatever he tells him to plead to. And Michael then was convinced that he would be pleading to a robbery and only get 20 years, but that really wasn't the plan. They wanted him to plead so that they could turn around and charge him with a um, murder as well. So his sister had actually um, called in, um, and mm-hmm. and we spoke with her. Remember, and then and then uh, that's Jessica, and then Janet uh, called in, and I remember her saying that she was a, a young mother, and mm-hmm. you know when you when you're a mother and you're being told that your son is going on death row, mm-hmm. um, it you know, and you know this so this is this was. In in my opinion, okay, I'm not a lawyer, can't be held liable for any of this, but I'm offering my opinion, you know, on how I interpret the law to be. To me, there was coercion. There was coercion and undue pressure. There was, uh, you know, when you sign that nobody is forced, nobody is forcing you to sign something, no undue pressure and whatnot. Well, guess what? That's exactly, in my opinion, what Michael Gaines experience these other uh these other men so uh well, I do want to say go ahead no you go ahead well i have spoke with his lawyer um on the phone and he basically explained to me that he didn't have a defense for michael because he already came into a pre-settled situation, which was the co-defendant who had paid lawyers, had their lawyers had already made a deal for them to get 20 years. So basically his job was just to get Michael to come in and plea at whatever cost that was. 
Um, he didn't explain anything to Michael, like if you decide to plea, you lose these certain rights. None of that stuff was explained to him. Michael said many times that he wanted his lawyer. They didn't let Michael have his lawyer whenever he was there. Actually, um, the investigator came over and told him he saw he didn't have a lawyer on file, so he was just going to take him over and question him, although he had said many times that he did not want to talk. And you know, but Michael also didn't realize that that's a violation of his rights. But, you know, they still took that upon themselves because they know they're young and naive. You know, his lawyer told me personally that he doesn't feel Michael should have been there. And if he was going to be charged, that he should be out at this point because he doesn't feel like he should be in there for a murder. I asked him at that point, why didn't you use that as a defense? Why didn't you help him? And he basically said that he just didn't have a life to stand on. Because at this point, Ken Sue was one of the co-defendant lawyers. Right. So they already I had. think he was uh, for Dante. Is that correct? Um, yes. Okay. So there was Daniel and Dante. So what happened here, stop me anytime, ladies. Daniel and Dante sure. had a plan to rob somebody that they owed money to. Mm-hmm. And there were two others that were going to help out with this right. robbery. They opted out fairly last minute, and that's when uh, Daniel and Dante went hunting for two others uh, that were right. going to help uh, with this robbery because they had a plan exactly how it was going to happen. It just so happens that it wound up being Timothy. Uh, mm-hmm. Timothy and Michael. Is that correct? Right. That is correct. Right. And um, and it's believed that they were smoking weed, but that it was that they were drugged unknowingly. That PCP was added to the blunt. Is that correct? Right. That is correct. They did that prior to uh, finding someone. So prepared. So when they went to the house, they asked Michael to go knock on the door. And at that time, the other two, Michael never even entered the home, correct? Well, let me never explain this up. They, they went by to originally see if Michael knocked on the door because it's a place that Michael had never been to. Would the people in the apartment actually open the door? And they wanted Michael to ask how much it would cost to buy, I don't know, a sack of weed or whatever. Well, because okay, it was so a known drug house. Okay. So there was a, it was a known drug house. So the guy said it'll cost whatever. We'll just say $25. And so he said, okay, Michael came back and told Daniel and Dante it was going to be $25. They later on, that's when they found out that, okay, he would open the door for a stranger, and that is when they later on drove around, hung out. There's nothing really to do in Lawton but kind of just hang out like that. So that's when they gave them the spiked uh, marijuana, and um, then once they got them to smoke it and they felt like they were at the state of mind where they could control the situation, they went back to the apartment. That's when Michael knocked on the door the second time, of course, the guy opens the door under the impression that Michael is coming to buy the sack of weed he, he had call, um, asked about earlier. That's when Timothy and Daniel then ran into the apartment because of the fact that the door was open. 
And that's when everything's so, uh, Right. So, so they're engaging in things that, um, you know, thinking they're smoking some pot, doing a lot of things that a lot of uh, young teenagers do, and, and you know, quite frankly, um, grown-ups do. them now becoming, you know, uh, gee, I think in New York it just became legal. Uh, I'm, I'm not trying to make excuses for anything. Yep. Yeah, but what I'm but what I'm saying is that um, is that uh, you don't get life without parole for smoking pot and knocking on somebody's door. Absolutely, and, and it is that Michael did not steal anything. The stolen merchandise was found amongst those three. So Michael never had any stolen property, and he never shot anybody. So, uh, that's what I want to stress. That is what Daniel was encouraged to come up with a story that implicated Michael in that light to get his name off the record as being the person responsible for shooting and having stolen property. And now one of the two have come out since, and they've they've cleared the air, redacting their earlier statements. And as well, Michael uh, wanted to redact his um, ready-made confession after being coerced, you, you know, my mom thinks I'm going to die, I'm going to go to death row, you know, okay, I'm going to, all right, all right, I'll plea, I'll plea, okay, all, all that stuff. 18 years old. 18 mm-hmm. years old. 18 years old. Uh, that in itself is something to look at. All right, now, again, we'll, we can get into that further and 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 just for time's sake i want everybody to know that we will do a show on tuesday evening as well so it starts half an hour later continuing with the law and four just in case people are wanting how are they going to get all this done in one show it's not going to end until this madness ends but uh so 18 years old he wanted to take back his his guilty, uh, guilty plea, and uh, also for those that don't know, when Bri- when Bridget said that you lose rights for a plea deal, what that is, if you don't already know, most of you probably do, it means that peel a matter because you agreed to a plea deal. When you take a plea, you take away the ability to appeal. But in Michael Gaines' case, he had undue coercion, undue mis- misconduct, coercion, things written out that he was supposed to state or agree to. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. They already had the story together because Michael was not arrested at any time with these other three gentlemen. Um, Daniel and Dante were arrested because they were prime suspects. At that point, they were able to be in a jail cell together and encouraged to come up with the proper story and find the proper person to bring into this, and that's when they decided they had to bring Michael into it. And that's when they took the shade off of Daniel and put it all the light on Michael because of the fact that that made him the fourth party because it's understood that with felony murder, that if you're in the home or had anything to do with it, even if 
you didn't pull the trigger, you're still just as responsible. But Daniel was in the home as well, and he actually, you know, beat these guys with pool. He was he in the home things. as well. But was Michael ever in the home? Michael was in the doorway. Yeah, he was there. In the doorway, and, period. Okay. I just want to make that right. clear. He never yeah. went in. He, he was never yielding a, uh, a, a gun. He had no firearm. He was right. tripped no. out on PCP. He was drugged on PCP. Did they ever give him a test? Right. No, they didn't because Michael didn't come in for almost a month later. He was never a suspect till almost a month later when they were able to get the story coerced and put together. And at that point, that's when Daniel then became a part of the, we can give you a, a plea for a robbery for 20 years. And again, they tried to use that same thing for Michael because Michael, of course, said, I want to go to trial. And because he was asking to go to trial and his lawyer wouldn't allow that, then you know, they the were trying to allow that. Melissa, I'm going to interrupt you there. Melissa, let's speak yes. on that. What is the benefit there? What is your position on the lawyer not allowing him to go to trial? First of all, I, it obviously is your... he was young, he was coerced. I mean, yeah. you know, but what is the benefit there? Um we talk about this, of course. What's the benefit there for the lawyer, for the judge, for the prosecutor? I mean, I do know, you know, the defender, they all get paid from the same account, right? Yes, yes. And and we've talked about this before. And I make and make no mistake, there are very good public defenders. I know some of them. Yeah. Um, there are very good prosecutors who try cases and represent or, or prosecute cases with integrity, but then you have those that do not. And if you have someone that is 18 years old and you are supposed to be the person that the only person that is, that is there for them besides, but in the system, their lawyer, and you are telling them that they can't go to trial. See, this is where states that practice the death penalty, this is what, the, the death, what else the death penalty is used for. It's used as a bargaining chip. It's used as intimidation. It's used to say, hey, you know, you got to plead out to life or life without parole because if you don't, they're going to kill you. Now, if you're 18 years old or even, even whatever age, what, isn't your first inclination, isn't your first instinct that you don't want to die? Obviously. So if you're intimidating your clients and you're supposed to be the person that is representing them, there is a big problem with that. Everybody has the right to a trial, but what do we know? We know that 95%, at least, it's arguable 95 to 98% of all cases end with plea bargains, and this is the most extreme example of it. When you make these kids take these life sentences, life without parole sentences, because they're scared to die, and you, and you instill that fear in them as their own attorney, there's a problem with that. Yeah. You have people coming in you know, to talk like- to them, to... To, 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 you know, to, you, you're, you're threatening them with the death penalty. You're threatening their family members. You know, you have to, you better tell your son to take this deal because if not, they're going to execute him. And yes, it's a possibility. Of course it is that, that you can get the death penalty, but this is just part of this well-oiled machine that I talk about, and it happens. You see these relationships between DAs and public defenders and judges, and those relationships have to work for them because they work with each other every day. And again, yeah, I'm not I mean, the, the, every the judge public... doesn't want to be there trying all these cases. Yeah, um, again, the they same don't want paycheck, to try cases. This, 
is the same exactly and you know there's a huge misconception that needs to be cleared up okay so yes a, a public defender or defense attorney they are there to provide this is what their oath is to provide the best defense for that defendant okay guess what that means it does not mean that the defendant, and I think most of them usually are, I think, I don't know, you know, maybe I'm wrong saying that, but in this case, they're not. Okay, so they're supposed to provide the best defense for those that, uh, and, you know, get the least amount of sentence, the least punishment for their client, right? Well, what the heck ever happened to doing that for those that have a defense? Mm-hmm. So you don't have to consult yeah. something. You're not looking for loopholes. This is straight in your face. Corruption. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and all these cases Coercion. include that. So Misconduct, always... malfeasance from the top mm-hmm. to the bottom. And why won't it be retried? Why won't you retry these cases when there's new DNA in some cases and some matters, when there's uh, somebody who has come forward as a witness, why won't they retry these cases? Because they have something to hide, and that's what I'll tell you, and they're still alive, and they've got something to hide. You know, they'll go down in history when they're under the ground, but we have to make sure that they are out front and center, not after mm-hmm. they're dead, like Gilchrist and Macy. You know, these cases, these life sentence cases and these life without parole, I know a lot of a lot of my energy these days has been focused, you know, towards death penalty cases. I'm, you know, I'm a big advocate for Julius Jones. So yes, yes. That, let's, let's talk about exactly Julius Jones. Would you like to give an update on him before we go further? Well, we're still anything waiting. On his okay, so I, I I know I talk about this all the time, but for anybody who's listening who might not have heard this before, Julius is in the commutation process. He's made it through stage one, which means he gets a stage two hearing. So we're waiting for that to be scheduled in, in front of the pardon, the board of pardon and parole. So we don't know what that date's going to be yet. And there's been talk about it being in June, but we don't actually know that until they release their, their docket, their schedule for June. So we're waiting to see what that is going to be. So he, he, that's where we are in, in his process right now. And um, like I, you know, these, these cases, um, Julius had a, had a public defender in his case. Now his case was a capital case. Um, with no experience, with, um, without ever calling a witness on Julius's behalf when there were witnesses that could have been called, you know, not pro- not providing any any contest to, to the evidence that the prosecution was presenting, like a, a, a photograph of Julius that did not match the, you know, a lot of people know this case, but there were so many things in Julius's case that went wrong, and that's Oklahoma County, so. Not, oh, not well, talking, my gosh. And look at what's happening yeah. in the jail. There's another story that just came out about Oklahoma County and that jail. I mean, look, there's about nine deaths that go un- unanswered since for the year in the last year in Oklahoma County and more and more. Okay. And a, a nurse just came out, anonymous, and she said why she just left there because of the conditions, the abuse. Oklahoma, yes, listen, this is not a fluke in Oklahoma. This is what happens. If you want to know where, the, to my best belief and knowledge, um, from my own personal experiences and other people who contacted me after they heard about my situation, um, 
Tulsa District Court, the Star Chamber, the Star Chamber in Oklahoma, Judicial RICO. That's how this all started. That's how I got involved in this. And guess what? We've got a huge problem. We've got an attorney that was just nominated to be a federal court justice from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and his name is James Milton, who is right in the thick of it, in my opinion. I'll be very careful. It's okay, no matter how, do- how many documents I've seen, where he's been engaged in heisting millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars with other judges in Tulsa District Court. Listen, this is a huge problem from, uh, you know, heisting millions, ruining other people's lives, uh, children being ripped from families because it's a for-profit system. It's a for-profit system when you've got loving parents that their kids are being sold off essentially to other families because there's perks in it. This is about money, people. Oklahoma is twisted backwards, nasty. The Silver State should be later, and it should never, ever, ever, ever be. We need to blast this wide open because there are good people that are there. There are even some good representatives that are there. There really are. There are some good corrections officers that are there. There are some good cops that are there. But damn it, they're the exception to the rule, and they're scared. Oklahoma is twisted. Marty, you have somebody on the phone for us? Uh, yes, we have several callers. Um, there's a lady named Kelly. I'm going to bring her live. Kelly, you're live and on the air with Tanya. Hey, Kelly. Kelly's not talking. Okay. Scrap that one. <laughs> All right. Hang in there, Kelly. Uh, let's see. All right, then we've got, this is a caller you were expecting, uh, 5077. Hold on here a second. There you go. You're live and on the air. Hello, my name Tanya? is Charles Widers. Yes, your name? go I'm ahead. Sorry. Hello, my name is Charles Widers, and I am an advocate for the Oklahoma Coalition Against People Abuse here in Oklahoma City, and I am a youth director. Uh, I was sentenced to life in 20 years in 1994 as a 14-year-old kid. And I've served time with the guy, the gentleman that we're speaking about, uh, Mr. Gaines and several other of them. So, and and I would like to say uh, for the record that, and I want people to understand something, that we're not talking about just adults being proud, punishing, or taking advantage of. These are kids. Therefore, Mm -hmm. lawyer, public defender, judge, district attorney, should have the best interest of these kids. These are kids. I was a 14-year-old kid sentenced to life of 20 years in prison for a crime I had no knowledge of. And I served 26 oh years God. in prison because of this crime. So the thing is, and what we have to get down to, the basic is this right here, cut and dry, is that these kids, these kids, again, the the court system, no one in the court system has the best interest for these kids. It ain't even about crime or punishment, it's about them neglecting their duty to be adults to take care of proper care of kids. Listen, none of these mm-hmm. kids know the law. None of them. I didn't know. I couldn't read or write when I went to prison. So none of these kids know the law. And just like 
uh, Mr. Gaines and several others, they sent in eight different people I never seen in my life. It wasn't even from my neighborhood and told me to plead to some charges and plead to a sentence to a crime that I wasn't even involved in. So, I mean, what they're doing is because the, the, the lack of maturity as a young as a young adult, a young kid, teenager, however you want to say it. Right, your brain isn't fully they, formed until you're 25, correct? Right. So they try to send in all these different until you're 21. People. Right. So they send in all these different people to try to tell you what's best for you. First off, the judge, the district attorney, the public defender, nor the attorney even have what's best for you set in mind. So therefore, something should be done about that. No child in prison, teenager, 14, 15, 16, 17, or even 18-year-olds or 19 or 20-year-olds should be in prison with this amount of time that they've given them. Listen, I've been in there with kids that came in at 16 years old doing two lives without 160 years, and some uh, with more time than that. So my thing is that, and what we need to look into, what people need to look into and investigate is, how can one set up on a bench and how can one represent the people, although they say that this child has committed a crime, but send this child to one of the worst places known to men? So that's a problem. Like, I mean, these, these are babies we're talking about. Charles, I'm going to interrupt you. Just one second. Hang in there, okay? There's a book called Correcting Corrections. Um, uh, Oh, my goodness gracious. I'm going to find that, and I will share it later, okay? That's another thing I'm going to find. I remember the name of the man that's up for parole. His name is Daryl Wiggins. But um, this, there's two people, Michael Johnson and um, uh, Rhonda Champagne, who set up a um, – who actually was asked to, in Montana, set up a, um, a rehabilitation system, Okay. They, long story short, they've been on the show working with them independently on the on the side. Have to get back to that um, uh, to come out with the educational podcast. Um, they set up a system that worked so darn well that in Montana, that their recidivism rate went from eighty five percent down to fifteen. Percent recidivism. Somebody who winds up back in prison again. All right. So you tell me, why did Montana stop that program? Why did it? It was taken away from other nonprofits that were making money off of uh, off of the system, off of not rehabilitating people, off of the people that committed crimes again because the state doesn't do their job because they're not doing their job with rehabilitation. Did you know that most people that are in prison are in there for drugs, that they were abused, that they uh, impoverished? For God's sakes, we need to reposition reposition people's lives. We need to not treat them as a number, not talk to them like they're a, a, a rabid animal and get away from me and not threaten them, you know, but teach them discipline, teach them compassion. This is a program that was successful 
Now they're working with legislation and trying to change things. Now, Charles, I know that you and I are friends on on Facebook. I know that we've commented and we care about each other and, and, and the missions that we're on here. Um, I didn't know about your story. I was always curious about your story, and I, I'm really excited about hearing more about it and actually having you on, on on a separate show also. And, you know, you being able to tell your story from that experience. Uh, absolutely. Um, it's a huge, huge problem. It is it's a pipeline of money that is being fed to this state. Why is Oklahoma dirt poor? Well, guess what? That's a misappropriation of funds. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Because you know what? You go. It's a misappropriation of funds. I want to see the transparency here. You go on all these guys' cases, all right, these four cases. Guess what? You're not going to pull up their docket and look. As a matter of fact, some of their – uh, their records have been destroyed despite the arguments that continue to exist. Destroyed. May I speak How real quick? Innocent I, man. Yes, please. I don't mean to cut you off. Uh, three years of three years of my records have been destroyed and lost. They can't find because I did 1,172 days in Oklahoma County Jail. So they destroyed a bunch of my records and. Uh, come to find out that I didn't go to court for three years. So three years that the court, my public defender and the district attorney and the judge had uh, closed-door conversations about my case that I had no knowledge of, me nor my family. But that ain't really it's what I want to it's, it's, Okay, so Okay, so that was a um, – all right, so that was a um, ex parte meeting that was improper. Right, for three years. But listen, let, let me uh-huh. tell you. This is this is this is what I want to get out there as well, uh, before before we get lost in conversation. That in Oklahoma, anywhere between nineteen and twenty years from now back, that the Oklahoma juvenile system and adult system was getting kickbacks for sending juveniles to facilities. And even DHS was involved. They even allowed it. And the courts from the highest court to the lowest court all know about these judges and district attorneys doing this. None of them has ever been charged, fired, nothing, punished, nothing. And they know that these kids still remain in prison to this day. So, therefore, they have done nothing about going back off in their resentencing or even opening and looking up these cases knowing that their fellow colleagues have broke the law. They have broke the law, for the record, to sentence these kids to prison because they were getting kicked back. I just wanted to say that. No, that's – thank you for that. And, uh, yes, there's clear and convincing information uh, that would lead that. Would lead that. Um, you know, the best I've been able to do regarding judges is I got J. Anthony Miller taking off of a, uh, a form that he was on, and he was put into uh, domestic violence uh, protective orders. And then, and then suddenly he appears on – and he's over in Tulsa – and suddenly he appears – on a murder case. And so here we have over in, you know, in this neck of the woods in Comanche County, we have got innocent men that are going to prison, okay? And then you you hop on over to Tulsa County, and then you've got a man who was murdered, and you've got a mom crying to me, saying, why didn't he get a day of jail time? Why didn't this man get a day of jail time? It was a black-on-black murder, Okay. It was. But why didn't he get a day of jail time? 
because nobody cares because that life isn't worth caring about. Uh, there's got to be more to that. One more time. Then we're going to circle back around to that. But what on earth is going on? I know a lot that's going on, but there's plenty I don't know. And this is why, everybody, you hop on it. You hop on over or email me at injusticeinoklahoma at gmail.com. I'm not all that fancy, but we need to keep hearing your stories. I've been getting tons and tons and tons of them for years now, and we need to address this as a whole because it isn't. It, it isn't child. It, it is at DHS. I, I mean, it's it's at DHS. It's a, it's in probate court. It's in family court. But the most important thing right now is people that are sentenced to death row. That always has to take the precedence. And hey, man, child, can I say something real quick? Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut you off because you're going deep, and I, I love when you speak. But check this out. Now, I was 17 years old placed on death row, so I was down there with him as a kid. I wasn't sentenced to death, but I spent 30-something days on death row. But one of my things that I want to bring uh, light to is the Keith Brown situation. Now, yes. and a lot of people know, and they've probably been following me, Keith Brown situation. Keith Brown, is a, he was a 16-year-old kid who was sentenced to life in prison for a uh, – he didn't kill no one out of Guthrie, out of Logan County. So, I mean, and, 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 it, and also if you've been following me, you also know that we're, trying to, we're challenging the felony murder law as well. But that's one of the – this is one of the cases. Keith Brown cases, one of the cases, it just don't make no sense to me, and it, and it really touched me because – this kid has been, well, this man has been locked up for 22 years now, and he hasn't killed anyone. Right? He like is a poster child in demand, in demand for uh, a second chances. It, it, exactly. Yes. I've seen, I've seen the, what, the videos that have been put out. Uh, unbelievable. I know his, his, his mom has been in touch with me, and he is exactly unbelievable. He is so well spoken and most of the time he does not talk about himself he doesn't talk about himself (laughs) yes unbelievable well let's talk behind the scenes um and uh we just want to make it perfectly clear here that this is not a fluke this nasty horrible cancer that is happening in oklahoma it's guess what it's not because the population is filled with bad people. It's just not. I've been there. I've, you know, I spent enough time there. You know, God forbid, don't go into a court. Um, don't be caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's, it's, um. The bad people isn't just the ones out here committing the crimes. The bad people is the ones punishing people for committing yeah. crimes. They need to be in prison. They're the ones that need to they be, need to be held accountable. And I don't care if you try to rehabilitate them, because guess what? <laughs> they, they don't deserve any services because they'll do everything they can to take it away from you. Now, I've been fortunate enough to be able to make a difference between people getting equal time, going outside from prisons, you know, getting them showers and, and things like that. But, dear God, we need to save lives. We need to save lives. Charles, thank you so much for calling in, and uh, we're going to have you back on, you know, at least for a full yes, show, talking do. to you, your and story, you. And, 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 and you can help talk about Keith Brown. I'd love that very much. Thank you. Ah, You're welcome. Okay. Uh, okay, Tanya, okay. you've got Amber on. 
Hold on here. Amber. You have Amber on. Yes. Okay, so thank you for All right. So uh, just for our listeners, this, so this is why we're going to need more than one show. Uh, the boards are full. Um, this is really important. Yes, this is about the lot and four, but let's cement this. Let's cement this. This is just how bad this situation is. Okay, we have had corrections officers come out that were that that quit. Okay, and that they were their lives were threatened all along the way. They were the good people. All right, their lives are threatened because they know that they're no longer working there. Okay. The system knows that, people in the system, and, and they keep getting threatened if you come out. If you this, they keep doing scare tactics, and people have come on anonymously, and some like James Lyric has come on perfectly open telling his story. There are so many people that once these shows started, they came out of the woodwork. So thank you, Amber, for calling, and uh, what's your question or comment? Um, yes, hi Tanya. My name is Amber and I just wanted to speak on behalf of Michael. Um, yes. you know, I know that Michael's an innocent man and, and he was framed for a murder that he didn't commit. Um he was just completely railroaded by the system. He was given an excessive sentence. And I know firsthand in Lawton, you know, the lawyers, the prosecutors, the judges, they all work together to frame who they want to frame. And just because he couldn't afford a lawyer and he had to get a public, you know, defender, it was inadequate. He never got the trial that he should have gotten. The evidence wasn't brought forth. So I just wanted to, you know, speak on his behalf for that. Okay, so, Amber, um, were you uh, privy to any of the um, happenings? Um, I mean, or is it because you've done so much research that you're aware of this? If you want to just give us some of your background, why you adamantly stand by him like we do. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I've definitely done some research on it. I actually have a little bit of experience as well. Um, I've studied some cases, not not just his, but others as well. Um, I actually was a corrections officer in Lawton at the Lawton Correctional Facility, and it broke my heart. I've seen young men in there, 18 years old, um, sentenced to life without parole, and these were good guys. Maybe some of them made some bad mistakes, some bad choices, poor choices, but they were good people. They were, you know, respectful, and they had manners, and, and they were smart, and and I, it broke my heart seeing an 18-year-old, you know, <clears throat> on multiple occasions locked up with life without parole. So I started, you know, doing my own research into things, and that's how I found out about the Lawton Four, and, and I've been studying the case. And, yeah, so I'm just I'm trying to advocate for these guys as well. Amber, thank you. Um, feel free to connect with me behind the scenes as well. Uh, we appreciate the fact that you um, took it upon yourself to look at people behind bars um, uh, as human beings and not a number and uh, and to care about them. I mean, they're children. They're children. Absolutely, you, yes. They, it, it, you know, these. I, I've, got, I've got a 20 and a 22-year-old. And as mature and amazing as they are, I still look at them. I mean, you'll always, even when they're 50 and I'm 90, hopefully, you know, <laughs> but uh, you always look at them as your children. But guess what? 
they are not fully formed. They, uh, you know, their brains are not fully formed. Um, everybody comes from different upbringings, and uh, some for some, this is all they knew. For others, there are bad choices. For others, they're doing you know things that a lot of young kids do. But they're black. God forbid they're African American in Comanche exactly. County. Yes, yes. And you happen to feel that way because of what you saw in Lawton, which is a public prison. Is that correct? Or private prison? It's private, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And what yes, led you to I, leave there? Uh, well, that, that was actually personal family things, but it was okay. very stressful um, working there and just seeing – I saw a lot. <laughs> I did. I saw a lot of injustice while I was there. And um, I've never had the opportunity. Amber, you've to called in before, haven't you? No, actually, I, this is my first time calling in. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, well, thank you for calling in. Okay, so here is another person stepping up front and center on behalf of the truth that she knows. And all you need to do is turn that into a sworn affidavit, and that can go on the record. That can go on the record. Um, uh, so if you don't mind contacting me, I can, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't give advice, but this is what we need to do. People that are aware of these circumstances, if they're courageous enough, then it's hard. You can't go judging other people that are afraid that their kids are going to get murdered because you took a stance or that they're going to get murdered because you took a stance. And it is that serious in Oklahoma, people. It is. It really yeah. Yeah, okay, thank you. But um, it's very important to go on the record with firsthand knowledge, create an affidavit, and we can get that out there for you. I, get, I can help you out with that. I'm not going to give you words to say, but I can uh, turn it into, um, as an advocate, not a lawyer, a legal document that goes on the record for what really happens, what you are aware of to the best of your ability. And uh, and this is what we need. Melissa, can you talk on that for a moment, uh, given the fact that people have the right to be there for public hearings when law is, when law is being presented, when bills are being presented? Oh, yes. Every, everybody has the right to be there for a public hearing. I wanted to quickly just touch on something just because of the of Charles and Amber calling in and I'm glad that Amber called in because she brought up a point of these 18 year olds who are sentenced to life without parole I wanted to talk about that for a minute if you don't mind because you touched on it but I don't know if everybody understands the, the seriousness of the issue of cognitive ability and culpability because when you have offenders who are under the age of 25 and you know as you said the there's research that says the, the age, the, the brain doesn't develop until the age of 25. There's research that even brings it beyond that to maybe the age of 26, 27. But what we have here is we have four, the, all these four gentlemen of the law and four were all well under the age of 25 when they committed their crimes or not committed crimes when they were sentenced. We have people, even people who are under the age of 25 and who have committed a crime, these sentences need to be revisited. You put somebody in prison at the age of 18 years old to life without parole, 
mistakes have been made. They don't have the, the culpability because they lack the cognitive ability to make those decisions that we make as, as adults. Like you said, you can't drink until you're 21. You, you can't run a car until you're age 25. There's a reason for that because certain decisions that you make, um, there's still peer pressure that's involved. That you still lack the ability to make rash decisions. You're impulsive. And these are all things that come into play for people who are under the age of 25. So now I'll bring it over to the legislative part of it. There's legislation, second-look legislation, that really should be adopted by every state because this is legislation that would look at sentences of people who were convicted under the age of 25 for that reason. Because if you don't have the cognitive ability, then you certainly lack culpability for those crimes. And I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that crimes have not been committed in that age group because they have. But you, one, according to the Sentencing Project, one in seven sentences are life without parole sentences. This is what's filling our jails. These are sentences that need to be revisited. We have legislation here in Connecticut pending that I've been following for a bill that would review sentences, uh, excessive sentences of, those, of, of offenders in those age groups. And I feel that that is legislation that should be adopted everywhere. Now, is Oklahoma going to ever have that type of legislation? I hope that it's the legislation that's going to trend from state to state because if we truly want to reduce prison populations, we have to look at those sentences. And and it's to reduce prison populations, but it's also to, to give another chance. I mean, you're talking about juveniles and trying to rehabilitate them and lowering recidivism rates. It's clear research that shows what you need to do to accomplish that. But as you said, there's, there's, there's places, there's organizations, there's nonprofits that instill programs that are not effective because they do not follow best practices. If you want mm-hmm. to truly rehabilitate juvenile offenders, you need to follow a best practice criteria of, cog- of cognitive behavioral therapy, addressing their criminogenic needs, providing them with education, job services, and mentors. Juvenile mentoring programs are very effective. Instead of policing schools, maybe we should have mentors in those schools to figure out why deviant and criminal behavior is is being exercised by these juveniles who are either in the system or on the cusp of entering the system and preventing that behavior. Because what we do know from research is crime control does not prevent recidivism in juveniles and it does not prevent delinquency. It, is, it sets them up for failure. They need services. That's what they need. They don't need to be policed in schools. They don't need to be thrown in jail for the rest of their lives at the age of 18. We need to address Amen. that. That needs to change. Yes. Goosebumps. Hey, can, Goosebumps. I, can I say something on that? Sure. Is it Charles? Yeah, it's Charles. Oh, good. Now y'all know I'm a talker, but listen, let me let me let me explain something for the Department of Correction. And I am speaking for the Department of Correction. So please hear me out, everyone. If you take a forty year old and a sixteen year old with the same exact background, commit the same exact crime, the district attorney and the judge isn't going to push and not because the adult know right from wrong or know the law. They're not going to push for the same exact sentence. Why? Because this 40-year-old within the next couple of years is going to probably have diabetes or have some type of medical issue to where the state is going to be spending probably maybe $100,000 a year for medication and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But if you take your 16-year-old kid and you place him in prison, 
you're not going to have to worry about no medical conditions until at least 22 to 25 years of his incarceration. Therefore, right. they you get free labor. Time. What are you worth to the state? What are you worth right. to the you state? Get, they Am get I right, free labor. Right. They get free labor out of these kids for 20-something years without having to spend one dime. A meal, a meal that feeds 1,500 people in the population only really costs the state like $7 and some change for, for just uh, 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 the best meal they have, hamburgers and fries. It only costs them close to $8 to feed 1,500 people. So they're not losing money, but putting these kids in here, getting all this free labor out, out of them, and, mm-hmm. but they can't do that to adults. So when they come to sentencing, they're going to lean, they're going to always lean towards giving the kid the most time because they don't have to spend that much money on them. All they got to do is, re- is release them inside of their dungeons and just let them go about their life. There's no rehabilitation in prison at all. They're young. They're strong. Years. I know a judge. I know a judge over in Tulsa County, okay, that I believe is still active, who has had offenders that are in prison, that are behind bars, that goes to her, that has gone to her estate. By the way, I believe that is an estate that was robbed, that was heisted through uh, the probate process. And these young men are slaves working throughout the night. Property. Mm-hmm. She's been caught, and she still remains, or did, I think she still does, in position. What the heck is wrong with this system when we keep letting off those people that are supposed to enforce our Constitution? And instead, they abuse you me take lives away. Take lives away. Because we have lives to be the enforcers. Fathers and, and mothers that commit suicide because they can't handle the pain. Because they can't handle the pain of losing their child. Um, it's a, the mental abuse, legal abuse syndrome, it is, it is a DSM. Thank goodness to the good doctor that got it there, all right, who has now since passed. Um, it is a legal abuse. It is, um, it's, it's so trying, so trying. When you have loved ones that are counting on you for their future, when it's supposed to be their best times in life, and you are being circled by a pack of rabid wolves who are actually the ones that are voted in or appointed to continue doing the job of the last person that was doing it as they ride off into the sunset and their cushy lives. Can I ask you a question as a friend? They made sure that there was a succession in place. Can I ask you a question as a friend? Yeah. So what what should we, the people, do about it? Um, We, the people, need to come up with a conglomerate, in my opinion, of sworn statements. Sworn statements. From all over the place. I know that you know, you know, I, I've, I've been collecting affidavits for several years now, um, and some are still, you know, being collected. Um, I believe that there is, uh, uh, there needs to be, as Tina Gertz and myself put on a, um, a, uh, a rally in Oklahoma, and we had several speak there. We had like five people speak there. Three of them won their cases after that. Okay, we we need to not give up because people do win their cases at the whistleblower summit. You will learn if if you go there, people, 
or at the whistleblower summit, you'll meet people that are fighting. Yes, indeed, you will. You'll meet people that are looking for help. Yes, indeed, you will. You will also meet um, very successful reporters that tell you what to do and how to get your story out. Okay, so that it's not just like blindly just thrown away because it's too emotional. All right, um, you will find out. I, I mean, what you need to do is put things on the record. Everybody needs to be one team. It's not about one voice. It is about all the voices. It is about sending out the emails to your representative and documenting those emails, documenting what is uh, replied to and what isn't. Listen, we've got uh, Mike Hunter is the attorney general there. Mike Hunter, who refuses to take calls when I have promised that I could have his office full, with convincing evidence that there's judicial recall in his home city, Tulsa. And suddenly I'm told, don't call here again. Um, Langford's office helped with that, but very little. Once again, he showed back up. Uh, Judge Miller did. Uh, listen, there's, we need to come forward. Everybody needs to, who honest to God, you do not make anything up. You have to be honest. What you know and believe is your best ability under the pain and penalty of perjury to be true cause for action or investigation. Mike Hunter needs to be investigated. When they would not accept a remonstrance in the Supreme Court, of Oklahoma, there was a conference call, and I said, okay, okay, even though you should accept a remonstrance, look it up, look it up, listeners, okay, because I won't get into that right now. Uh, it was David Arndt in the case with uh, child custody that put it forward. Um, when they would not accept a remonstrance, I said, okay, Tanya, let's talk about the path of least resistance. Okay, so who oversees the Attorney General? Well, my goodness, it's the senators, it's the legislator there. Okay, so that means that if they have their druthers about them, they could actually investigate the attorney general for not doing his job, for not overseeing what needs to be overseen. Okay, and let's talk about the Bar Association. So you send letters to the Bar Association. If there is a good reason, you don't gripe about how you feel, you actually talk about what law, what due process has been violated, and you cite your case. They'll come back with a cookie cutter, oh, it's not my jurisdiction. They'll come back with that, okay? Guess what? I spent over an hour and a half on the phone with Gina Hendricks, who has said, oh, it's not in our jurisdiction many, many times. And I let her know how much it really is in the jurisdiction, okay? Um, she turns people away, notoriously, that are part of, uh, you know, defending the rights of other lawyers instead of the rights of the people when due process has been denied. You need to be succinct in your complaint. You need to put it forward properly. You need to, um, you need to actually send it in because if you when you send it in electronically you're not going to get a copy of it so you need to send in and then you're going to get a doggone form letter just like everybody else gets okay same thing with a judicial review once you get that 
And once you've tried to get in touch with, you've got to follow the hierarchy, okay? You've got to follow the hierarchy. You have no right to go to the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. until you try to settle it within your state. So you've got to contact the Bar Association, if that's the case. Then you need to contact the Judicial Oversight Committee, if that's the case. And then you've got to contact the Attorney General's office, if that's the case. You contact the governor, if that's the case. And you hold on to whatever documents you send out and you get back. And we collaborate all that cookie-cutter bullcrap that we keep getting back from these people, okay? And there's there's case law and there's constitutional law, most importantly, which trumps everything, okay, that says you are wrong and the people are right. And we're getting you out of office. That goes forward to the Department of Justice, in my opinion. But you can't do it with one case. You can't do it with ten cases. You've got to come forward with a lot more than that. Because then the people in the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. can be the heroes to many. And they're not going to, you know, they're not going to be the heroes to one. I'm sorry. It's not, it doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way. You've got to collaborate. All these groups that are together, they need to collaborate. Get rid of the power, you know, mongers and people who need to be in the spotlight and all that stuff. Don't get rid of them. But everybody just needs to relax and come to a point where you share the information. You share the information because it's for the greater good of saving lives. Oh, okay, again, on on locking on the on the lock four. Uh, what approach and what all do we need to get done to get more light shine on their situation? Exactly what I said. Exactly what I said. So because, for those guys, uh, do we go strictly to, uh, okay, let's say start now. Our, the first time anyone is on here that's listening, they want to reach out and help them. What would be their very first approach? Um, I would say, you know, send in a uh, – listen, there is no statute of limitations for fraud, okay? There's no statute of limitations for it as far as I know. You know send in a complaint when it comes to Ken Sudorfel, okay? You don't have to have hired her to complain about her, all right? Listen, the people that she represented and the people that uh, she actually um, – uh, contrived cases against them that she, when she was representing a co-defendant, you, you know, and when the co-defendant steps forward and, and, you know, and says, hey, listen, this guy's got to be out of jail. This is a whole other story here, okay? Actually, you know, send in your complaints to the Bar Association. If a judge did not allow exculpatory evidence in, you need to send a, a true, everything has to be true and valid complaint to to the Judicial Oversight Committee. Okay? You get that back. So I can tell. got your copy. You got their response. Okay? What are they going to do about it? Of course, they're going to do nothing, okay, individually. But when we have all these, and then it goes to Hunter, it goes to Governor Fit, okay, then collaboratively, we all put all those together, and we go forward to the Department of Justice with this. Because the Department of Justice, the federal government, has taken over certain aspects of uh, – criminal injustice in Oklahoma before, and Oklahoma has deprived the federal government of their rights 
to actually Can oversee. I say something real quick, Tanya? Can I, can I jump yeah. in real quick, yeah. please? I just want to say, too, we need to, um, we need to, first of all, advocacy works. We need as many people as possible to shed light on these cases to see what's going on. We've only spoken about Michael's case so far, but if you look at Jorge Bravo's case, it's very similar to Michael Gaines's case, yep. and it's a completely different case but very similar situations. People need to see what's going on. Not everybody sees it until, you know, people advocate and you see it more and more. I mean, I can use cases like Julius Jones and Rodney Reed as how much advocacy actually works. So when when you have a lot of people who will use their voice and will stand up and say, okay, this is wrong, something needs to be done, how do you change things? How do you change things from from the root? You have to pay attention to, to legislation. You have to pay attention to proposed bills. You have to contact your representatives and your senators because even if a bill is not proposed and there's some type of issue or problem that you have, they're elected to, to listen to that, to listen to you, to listen to their constituents and what the concerns are. So by changing legislation is how you change things, and by advocating in cases like this is how too. you take notice. Enforcing it, Melissa. What about enforcing perjury? How about well, that? yeah, you. How about I mean, yes, that too, but by they, a lawyer. Okay, well, to, what I'm saying is to to change things from the root. If you're talking about how you right. want to change things from the root, that is changing the way the way the legislation looks, the way that laws are made. When things happen, like you said, perjury or misconduct yeah. or any yeah. anything like that, enforcing. You have to. It, it has to. It, it does. It has to be enforced. But and it's got to go take on the notice. record when it it's got to be. And that's where we need that record, Melissa. It's got to go mm-hmm. on the record where it isn't. Otherwise, you can legislate anything. It can go. It, it can be a bill that's passed. It can sound great. Well, you, you know, backpats and everything to all. But guess what? If it is not enforced, it means nothing. It's like vitamins or that pass to a gym that you pay for, sitting on the mm-hmm. shelf doing nothing. It's well, I mean, I, I I agree with you, but you can find yeah, you can I know, I know, I know. With, with every government agent or state agency you want to, but until you until people actually step up and say, well, you know, we're not going to this this isn't right, this shouldn't be happening. Until people, like you said, will use their voice at public hearings on, on legislation. It's, nothing is going to change until that changes. I work at the Office of State Ethics. I see ethical complaints all all day long. But it's not always in our jurisdiction, you know. We the agencies have yeah. jurisdictions that they have, you know, they, that they abide by, obviously. But it, I mean, if we, if we there, go there's on there's all of legis- these cases, Melissa, if we go uh-huh. on all of these cases, Jorge Bravo, Stanley well, yeah, Watson, look at Jorge's case. Michael, look Dan, at Jorge's case. Uh, Mark West. Similar, like That's I what said. I see. I have nothing mm-hmm. that you can pull up and open in the PDF. But you know what I see every year, systematically, really easy for the state to do, subpoena, uh, sir, uh, hold on, intercept fund. It's the intercept fund, okay? CS intercept, tax intercept fund. So somehow the state of Oklahoma is quite successful garnishing that tax refund systematic. Bum, 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 okay? They're very successful with that. They know how to file that okay, but why is it that they're not willing, but why is it that they destroy public records? 
of active cases where people are denying the fact that they're guilty. Why is that? I don't know. There's, and, and there's, isn't there some pending the legislation on that the right now? In Oklahoma, with a private prison, they have to keep 80 to 90% capacity of the state, or the state will pay penalties. Okay? Yes, they're starting to do away. I'm sorry? It's 115% private prison capacity. That's what they got to keep. They made a promise to keep 115% capacity. If they don't keep 115% capacity penalized, they would have to pay private prisons. All right. Uh, you gotta, you've got to enlighten me on that. Uh, I, I appreciate that, and I believe you. Um, maybe my information okay. is not most recent, or maybe that's the behind-the-scenes information, but, uh, I mean, th- this is just it. It's, you know, this is all motivated by money, whether, you know, part of it is, you know, through racism, part of it is through packing your, their own personal pockets. Some of it, very little. The exception to the rule is simple, just like, um, not negligence, what's the word I'm looking for? It's uh, gullibility. People are gullible and they're believing what their constituents are saying. But, you know, you have to do your own work. You've got to do your own work, people. You want to know why you can't open up the docket? You know, listen, there are transcripts that are supposed to be the record, right? I've recorded court hearings and the transcripts come out with a whole different story in Oklahoma. Somehow that's okay. Somehow that's okay when you go to the appeals court. Why? So I'm noticing that we only have about 20 minutes left, and I know there's people that are on listening because they want to hear about um, Jorge Bravo and they want to hear about Mark West and Stanley Watson. So I'm wondering if we could kind of stare it back to them a little bit before the show ends. I know we always run out of time, but. I know that there's we people listening and they want to hear some about but, these cases. You know, the gravity you know? of the matter needs to be brought forward, and and this is not a fluke. Just I want people to know out there no, that the law is not a fluke. It's systematic. No, it's not. And if we would notice, you know, the, the similarities in, in these cases, I mean, like Jorge's case, um, yes. there's, a lot of, there, there's a lot of things that happen in, in Jorge's case that, that will raise visions even more, similar to Michael Gaines's case. I mean, he was he, he was um, he was actually given life in prison, but there's a lot of things that happened in his case. Just as, as with the you know they they latch onto informants that happened in Jorge's case. Now, I, I know we don't have a lot of time left, but um, Jorge's case also involves a, a robbery of a U-Haul facility, which is where he was employed. Um, there was a robbery set set up to take place, and he was convicted to life in prison because they. They believe that he played part in orchestrating that robbery. But um, what I want to say about Jorge Bravo's case is you had mentioned, um, we mentioned in Mike's case actually, um, robbery in, in a 20-year sentence. Well, Jorge Bravo was actually um, sentenced to life in prison when the original charge in his case was conspiracy to commit robbery with a dangerous weapon, and 20 years was put on the table. Now, what happens in his case is they, the, the man who actually owned the gun that was used to commit this murder and this robbery, which was not committed by Jorge, 
um, was actually used as an informant because he had another case hanging over his head. So now Jorge's case mm-hmm. goes from 20 years for robbery with a dangerous weapon to first-degree murder because now they have an informant that can point, that can collaborate with them and point the finger at Jorge. So, you know, this guy walks away, and Jorge now goes from this, this robbery charge, which was never resolved, by the way, that's a whole other story, to first-degree murder in a, in a life sentence. So we see the similarities there. Um, Michael Gaines mm-hmm. was sentenced to life without parole because the people who actually orchestrated the robbery worked out deals and mm-hmm. Michael Gaines is the one who took the fall with the life without parole sentence. Jorge Bravo was the one who took the fall with a life sentence. And mm-hmm. the, even the, the person in Jorge's case, the one who, who did commit the murder, who was the shooter, testified to the fact that Jorge wasn't involved. But they still latch on to this informant testimony, and they get tunnel vision, and they, they do what they want, and they convict who they want to convict, and they make it work, and they make it stick. And this is an abuse of these young offenders again because they don't know their rights. They don't know the system. They don't know that them, you know, pleading out to these sentences is, that's it, you, you know, life without parole. You don't have appeals when you mm-hmm. commit guilty, when you, when you plead guilty because they intimidate you to do so. So, I mean, in, even in, in Jorge's case, now Judge McCall was the judge in Jorge's case. So we haven't yep. talked about Judge McCall yet this evening, but um, even in Jorge's case, there was there was a juror who came forward and said that um, her family was friends with the victim's family, and that the sister of the victim told her, "You need to find Mr. Bravo guilty." Judge McCall ignored all that, left the juror on the pan- on the jury. I may have so anybody he- from Jorge's case reach out to me. This is Saul speaking. Can anybody from Jorge's mm-hmm. case reach out to me? And uh, are you going to speak on Mark West's case as well? Oh, who is this right now, please? This was Charles. This is Charles White. Can anybody, oh, hey, Charles. Who, for Jorge's case, can anybody reach me on my Facebook or Messenger so that uh, we can talk? Because I would like to uh, help them as well. Mm-hmm. Why, don't you, okay. why don't you spell out your name properly so that people can do that and find you? C-H-A-R-L-E-S, Charles, last name, Whiters, W-H-I-T-E-R-S. Okay, listeners. See, it, just, it takes more than a village. It takes more than a village. Uh, now, I just want to make sure that I'm getting this right with um, uh, with a particular case. Now, I believe, uh, Bridget, I believe it is in uh, Michael Gaines' case where um, when that uh, verdict no, it wasn't a verdict. He was actually okay. Um, I, oh, it's it's Stan. I think it's either Stanley Watson or Michael Gaines' case, where the mother, the two mothers, of both individuals, the deceased and the convicted, came together, and the mother of the deceased and the mother of the convicted hugged each other, embraced each other, and the mother of the deceased said, this isn't right, because she knew the mother of the convicted, she knew that the convicted was, did not belong in that position. Help me out. Um, I don't have, I'm going to have too many Watson's case. Yeah, that's that's not Stanley Watson's case. Because I didn't okay. happen in my case. 
Okay. All right. All right. So and we should hear about right. Stanley Watts and Jennifer. Jennifer's still on the line, isn't she? Yeah. And remember, remember, we're coming back with this. Listen, there are a lot of things to tie together here. A big point mm-hmm. of this show tonight has been to bring forward the fact that this is not a fluke. Okay. This is if if they want you to be guilty, you will be guilty. But you're not. True. And it'll take your life. And it'll ruin your family's lives, too. This is Oklahoma people, where it is. Uh, Jennifer. Yes, ma'am. Mom and the deceased Austin Hatch's mom, has, um, and she did give her a hug, and she told her that uh, she knew that um, Stanley did not do it. Stanley's her husband. Um, it's my yes, understanding that you were also um, – that you were also um, approached and you felt intimidated as well. Yes, they, like threatened to the, they, they did threaten to take my um, my son at the time away from me, and not only me, uh, Satchko as well. She she was pregnant at the time, and they threatened to take her unborn child, and she wouldn't be able to see her again until she was um, until Satchko was actually twenty one, and she was only I believe fifteen at the time. Mhm. So yeah, they did do a lot of threatening of taking kids. And can I ask you like, something? Yeah. Yes, go ahead. Was there any reason why they would take your child away and her child away? Is there any well, lawful my, reason? No, not no, not no lawful reason. But they they wanted me to change my story around and say that I saw some things that I didn't see, and they wanted me to change my story. So that was their way scared? of getting at me. At the time, yes, ma'am. He was my first child and my only child, and I was nervous. Of course you were. But at the same time, I knew the truth. But you'll do anything to protect your child, too. Yes, I do yes, anything ma'am. to protect your child and and still fight for the truth. Yes, ma'am. And Jennifer, there wasn't even any there there wasn't even anything um, that linked. Stanley to this crime, if I'm not mistaken, they didn't have any type of DNA evidence. They didn't have any type of. No, no, ma'am, they didn't. They had no. They had intimidation of a lot of um, teenage witnesses, uh, from Mm -hmm. what I recall from his. Yeah, from what I recall from his case, and um, there were people that right. Yes, ma'am, and Stanley was arrested at the time. But yes, yes, scholarships went to a party, normal thing, right? How yes, old ma'am. was Stanley when he was when when he was he charged, was Jennifer? He was only 17. Oh, he? Mm-hmm. he was 17 and convicted when he was 18. Then he, yeah, so he was initially 17. He wasn't even 18 yeah. when, yeah. And th- there were um, there were witnesses that actually testified that said the DNA. I mean, the DA had threatened them that if they didn't testify, yes. that like you said. Threatening to take, to take children, even unborn yeah. children. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, 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 and so not only do they take advantage of, of the defendants, the people who are charged with the crime, they take advantage of the witnesses that were there with intimidation. Yeah. And his lawyer also did not help him. He pretty much fed him to the wolves no, as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, w- once again, I want, I want to remind our listeners, right after this show, I'm going to uh, post at least, you know, one of 
uh, one of each of these um, wrongfully convicted or over-sentenced men um, said that you can hear more details, more of the intimate details of their cases. Uh, but again, remember, here we go. You know, with you, you, you know, you you go to look online, and guess what? You can actually scan and update the docket with any records to uh, keep it current for those cases. These people that are fighting for their lives, for their lives, people that are fighting for their lives, and yet. Oklahoma doesn't think it is all that important. I'm kind of wondering why. Why isn't it important that a contested matter is not transparent? And in some cases, it's gone. There's no excuse for this. There's no excuse for this, Mike Hunter, Attorney General. There's no excuse for turning your back on this. No excuse. <clears throat> um, Ken Sue Dorfel, she was actually um, an attorney for a, depend- a defendant. As well, she uh, was an attorney for Mike Gaines, correct? No, she wasn't his attorney, just one of his co-defendants. No. She was actually Mark West's um, attorney. Mark West's ter- attorney, Okay. Exactly. Okay. And that is one case that's slightly different that we'll, that we'll follow up on on Tuesday as well or however long it takes, where his conviction was, it was, uh, you know, there was some guilt there, but his conviction, his sentence, and what he was actually charged for is incorrect. So he does not deny that there was some involvement but his conviction was excessive, and it did not meet the prongs and the standards uh, that it is supposed to meet. Is that correct, Bridget? Um, yes. Yeah. He was charged with manslaughter um, and received a life sentence. But Ken Sue had him come in on a plea deal, and that's how he received that sort of sentence. Promising that he, she, promising that she would come back to get him, and um, he still sits in, in prison to this day. It, it, yeah. From what I understand, she told, advised him, plead out to this manslaughter charge, and then you know I'll, I'll come back and get you, and you'll, you'll be out. And I, from what I know, Mark had contact with her after he was in jail. She eventually stopped car- corresponding with him and responding to him. And, um, Notorious. Uh, needless to say, she never Done it to others, to I know. Mm-hmm. And a life sentence on a, on a manslaughter charge to where the, the victim in, in the case, you know, Mark doesn't deny that the altercation happened, but this victim didn't actually pass away at, you know, during the incident. It wasn't to two to three weeks later. And I don't know mm-hmm. that anybody's ever seen the coroner's report to see exactly how this person died and his attorney can sue just completely he didn't understand you know what i mean he didn't did he understand that she really wasn't going to go back and, and get him on this charge that she had him plead out to for which he received a life sentence very rare that you see somebody receive a life sentence for a manslaughter charge mm-hmm. but another thing in mark west's case was there anybody else to point the finger at 
she didn't have that. Hey, I served time with Mark West at uh, in, in Connors, uh, in Hamilton, Oklahoma, and uh, we also worked together. Now, this is an outstanding and humble young man, and we have spoke about his situation. And you're dead on on how Ken Su Su uh, sold him out. She basically yep. sold him out to get someone else off to probably pay more money. But she most definitely violated that young man, and he trusted her. Everything mm-hmm. she said because she was representing him, he trusted her with his life, and because of it, he's doing life, and that is so wrong. Mm-hmm. And something you just said, she sold him out to probably get somebody else off. And let's make that clear. There wasn't anybody else involved in Mark's, Mark West's case, but there doesn't have to be. Ken Sue has other cases in, in, in front of this court. So and that's what I've she sold seen, him out I've at. Seen this, I've seen yep. this happen before. I've spent many years in the courtroom. You let's resolve this case the way the prosecutor or the DA wants it to go, and I'm going to give you this deal for your other, def- you know, your other client for this defendant. That that happens, and I'm glad we that we are that young man right over to them, and that is sad. It's kind of like trading cards, but these are human beings, people. These are human beings that are being sold up the river, and you know it's kind of funny because when I initially contacted Kentu. She was very, very nice. Then I addressed her actions in regard to other matters. This is before I even knew about these cases. And she was hostile and she hung up. That's what you're going to get. That's what you're going to get. She is, you, you know, she is not... You can pay her all you want. Listen, I've been saying this for a long time. I'm going to say it again. In some cases, it doesn't matter how much money you have. Who will be represented will be who is actually decided on long before they even step foot in the court what, whose best interests are going to be in line. Uh, regardless of guilt, regardless of innocence, regardless of exculpatory evidence that is or is not brought forward, it will be what they choose it to be. I have talked to several people that have heard conversations in diners before court. Oh, this poor bastard. This poor bastard. And this poor bastard is the one who has money who's going to be broke by the time they leave court that day. So it doesn't matter if a decision is made, if you are unlucky enough, if, you're, if you are in the target zone, if, uh, 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 you, know, if you interrupt with an, uh, in a, an agenda, then you can have half a million dollars, you can have $2,500, you can have a public defender, whatever they want to have happen, is exactly come out saying, oh, oh, you think you're a victim. I bet every day will come out and they will try to make you look crazy. This is just what they do. This is their pattern. And people's lives that are at stake, those that are facing death row, those that are pretty much in death row, these prisons, facing life, without parole, or life with parole, but you know what that means. It means life without parole. So 
long as Judge McCall is in there. Remember, Judge McCall. Judge McCall and the Pardon Parole Board. Your life is really without parole, whether it is or isn't. It is life without parole as long as he is there. So you've got to remember, it is the agenda that takes precedence in Oklahoma until it doesn't. For the record, you're exactly right. Life with parole and life without parole is basically a death sentence if you have the wrong governor and if you have the wrong people on the parole board. So it really doesn't matter. And life sentence is not a 45-year sentence, for the record. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a life sentence. Absolutely, absolutely right. Absolutely right. It's because all as long as, like you said, mm-hmm. as long as you have a governor okay. in there and a, and a pardon and parole board that is not going to um, grant parole to, the, to these offenders. I mean, we know that they don't like to grant parole to people with violent offenses. So how... You know, how are you ever gonna going to get that opportunity when you're when your offense is considered a violent one? It, so you're right; those sentences are life sentences because they don't grant parole to those offenders. I, I won't say they never do, but they hardly ever do. I mean, listen, right. my my case, I did 26 years. I, they told me when I got sentenced because my 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 fall partner, I got the same case almost as the guys we we talking. I had a felony murder. Somebody committed a robbery. I had no knowledge of it. But one was guilty. They sent me a jury trial with a guilty man. The law is you can't find one innocent, one guilty. So they told me that I would be out of prison within three years. I beat it on my appeal. I did 26 years. Governor Fallon would not let me out of prison. Governor Keating, yeah, and Governor Keating was in office when I went to trial. But Governor Stitt let me out of prison as an innocent man. And what he did was, this is my last month on parole. I've been home for two years this month, and he gave me a stipulation as that I gave him 24 months of clean uh, UA, and one year from that day, he's going to give me a pardon. So one year okay. from this month, they're going to give me a pardon, and I was sentenced to life of 20 years in prison as a 14-year-old kid. Well, and we will, we will carry on this conversation. On Tuesday, it's going to be 8, it's going to be 7.30, forgive me, Central Time there in Oklahoma. This is, uh, please look for the, uh, okay, please, uh, we're going to talk more about these cases, more about why everybody's life matters here, and more about just what needs to be changed. There is no, no doubt about the fact that reform is needed. Um, You know, I've got plenty of articles. You know, this started 50 years ago in Oklahoma. Reform has still not succeeded, Um, but uh, I I'm Tiny Hathaway, and I'm going to finish up uh, this podcast with a song that I was not able to convert uh, to an MP3, uh, but I'm going to give you the lyrics to it, okay? But uh, once again, tune on in uh, on on Tuesday evening. You're going to get the the podcast link uh, and uh, Stephen Burke's information. Look at Injustice in Oklahoma Exposed Facebook page and follow up with those other shows so you can get more intimate details. This song was published by uh, Joe uh, Simovic and uh, the music by Paul Paulin, um, a song for wrongfully convicted. I'm going to keep going until uh, this uh, shuts me off, okay? Thank uh, you. Thank you. God bless. Thank you so much, Bree. Thank you, Melissa. Well, thank you, Jennifer. We're going to be back on. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Amber, for calling. All right, I'm going to give you some lyrics here.
the money didn't go get me no deal time this time the time 